This evening we're going to continue our series of sermons in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, before we, we do that, I want to read our passage for tonight, which is Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. And you can find that printed in the worship folder, or you can uh, just listen along. But I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is God's Word. So we're continuing our series through this gospel. And from the very earliest moments of Jesus' public ministry, he preached and he ministered what we've we've seen in previous weeks, the good news of the kingdom, which is another way of saying God's reign, his rule, That God is about the business of starting over in Jesus. The kingdom has broken in. And the last couple weeks, we've seen the way in which that's happened. Earlier in chapter 1, Jesus shows his absolute authority and power over evil and suffering. And we saw even earlier in chapter 1 as well that Jesus, this theme of his authority, emerged right away in his public ministry. And it emerged right away with respect to the contrast between his teaching and the teaching of the religious leaders of the day. People noticed it. They described him as one who taught with authority. In other words, he spoke on his own merit. He didn't appeal to anyone or anything else, but he spoke on his own authority, which was unique. But here we see Jesus' authority come to the forefront again. And what I want us to look at tonight in this passage is a question that has been percolating already in the gospel. And it's it's this question of who is Jesus really? He shows up. He casts out unclean spirits. He heals every disease and ailment that he encounters. And you can almost 
begin to hear off the page this question of, well, who is this person who does things like that? And that question comes to the forefront in our passage tonight. And it does, though. Mark brings it to the surface through his forgiveness. Through the forgiveness that Jesus gives to all who come to him in faith. So that's what I want to do, is I want us to to think together tonight about how does the Bible teach you the true identity of Jesus? And specifically through the forgiveness that he gives. So I want to look together at this forgiveness that Jesus gives under three headings. That Jesus' forgiveness is unexpected. That Jesus' forgiveness is alarming. And that Jesus' forgiveness is provable. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 5 together to look at how Jesus' forgiveness is unexpected. So far, where are we in the story? Jesus spent a whole day in Capernaum, and then he left. He left Capernaum, which is, as we see here from verse 1, really his home, his home base. And he has been on a tour throughout all of Galilee. And we don't know for how many days. We only read in verse 1 that he's now back in Capernaum after some days. And people have gathered to him. And he's preaching. He's teaching them God's word. And it's so packed. It's so full that there was absolutely no room left. And we discover that there is a paralytic and he has four friends. And his four friends hear that Jesus is home. And they want to bring his friend, their friend, to Jesus. And you have to wonder, if you think back in chapter 1, in verse 37, all of his disciples, Jesus, early in the morning, he has gone out to pray while he's at Capernaum. And his disciples don't know where he is. And and they all go out to him and, and they say, Everyone is looking for you. The implication is there are more people that want to see you and you aren't available. And remember, if you were here, we talked about very striking. Jesus says, we need to go. We need to leave. And I wonder if these four friends in the paralytic were not some of those people looking for Jesus only to discover that Jesus has left. He's gone out elsewhere in Galilee. And who knows, would he come back or not? And rest assured, his friends were not going to be able to carry their friend, even with all four of them, a paralytic on a bed, all around Galilee, trying to find him. But Jesus comes back. And and Enter into the drama of this for a moment. Here are these four friends. Jesus is back in Capernaum, and they have their friend who's a paralytic. And they think, we are going to go see Jesus this time. We will not be stopped. Which is a good thing, because they show up, and it is packed. They can't get in. And so what do they do? Here we read that they they couldn't get in, even at the door. So what they do is they remove the roof above where Jesus is. And that's a rather startling thing to read about. But let me tell you, in the first century, a roof was basically like a deck. They were, homes were single story. There were usually stairs that were built along the side of the house. 
and you could walk up, and it was a flat rooftop with uh, planks of wood or um, large twigs laid across to to, uh, form kind of a webbing. And then they would put thick mud on top of it, and it would bake and dry, and it really served as a deck. You would go up there, you would eat, it was a place to uh, get uh, fresh air during the, the evenings and get out from inside the homes, which didn't have a whole lot of windows or, or fresh air going in and out of them. So they climb up to the top. And just imagine what would happen if you were on the inside. Here are these people on top of the roof. They can't get in. They start digging out the roof to the point where you could l- lower a twin-size mattress through it. It would have been an enormous disruption. And it's interesting, Mark says really nothing about that. No comment. It must have taken a while. Probably was loud. It probably was dirty. Things were falling in on people. And notice the very first thing. Before I get to that, let me, let me, let me ask you this question. What do you think they were expecting? Everything up to this point that Jesus has done has been healing everyone that came to him. The expectation that we have here is that the paralytic and his friends were expecting that Jesus would heal him of his paralysis. That's what every one of us would think reading this story. But they lower the man down and Jesus does something completely unexpected. In verse 5, he says... Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, think about your reaction to that. Because your reaction at the gut level to that statement, Jesus' first pronouncement of forgiveness before he heals him, will tell you loads about what you think your most fundamental need really is. To put it as starkly as I know how, Jesus here pinpoints every person's most fundamental need, even more so than being healed of paralysis, which it's harder to imagine a more desperate situation for a person to be in. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. But notice also Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith. It's a beautiful picture of a definition of faith. Faith is coming to Jesus. It's coming to Jesus looking for him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Faith is coming to Jesus hoping and longing and expecting Him to do what only He can do. And there's an interesting tension here because as you read this here, Jesus clearly sees this man is a paralytic and is in great need of physical healing. But yet, He says, your sins are forgiven. Is Jesus, what's the relationship here? Is there something that this man has done and that's why he's paralyzed? Or... Or not? What's the relationship between the issue of sin and suffering? It's an important question. And it's a question that the balance has a, the Bible has a very balanced answer to. 
Again and again, we see the Bible never, always says that suffering and death are the direct result of sin. Sometimes it does. I'll give you two examples. One would be in the case of David, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, the very first son born to Bathsheba dies. And the passage, the Bible makes very clear that's a direct result of David's sin. Another example would be in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira essentially lie to God and experience the consequences almost immediately for that. But then, the whole book of Job balances that and teaches you that just as often... You cannot draw a direct connection between suffering and death and sin. The entire book of Job is an argument to show you that suffering isn't always or even mostly the direct result of sin. And Mark simply doesn't, he simply doesn't answer that question for us here. But I do want you to realize the Bible is very balanced about that. And it's very important not to lose that balance. Here, in this story though, this is the only one of Jesus' healings where he explicitly correlates sin and suffering, sin or infirmity. And it's hard to imagine someone in greater need than this paralytic. But what I think Jesus wants us to see is in the way that he responds, Jesus' response goes even deeper than the paralytic's physical need. To show us that our deepest need is to be cleansed from the guilt of sin, to receive his forgiveness. Now, how would you respond? I mean, if you were there and you were the paralytic or his friends, I think it would be disappointing, to say the least. (laughs) However much we might think we need this forgiveness, at this point in the story, it would be profoundly disappointing But the passage doesn't really tell us their response as it moves on so quickly to the scribe's response. But before we do that, see, here's what I want you to think. Think about is that the magnitude of this man's need is for healing. It only serves to highlight our greatest need. The fact that Jesus doesn't immediately respond to the the need of the paralytic to be healed, but moves to forgiveness. Is Jesus' way of saying, I I need you to understand how desperately needy you are to receive the forgiveness that I have come to give. But even as unexpected as this forgiveness was for the paralytic and his friends, it was absolutely alarming to the scribes who were sitting there. So Jesus' forgiveness is unexpected, but it's also alarming. Look at what happens here in verse 6 and 7. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, immediately the scribes question Jesus' right to do that. Can he actually say what he is saying here? And in fact, Jesus' words raise a serious theological problem. 
And the scribes express it accurately in the last of their statements when they say, only God can forgive sins. The point here, and the logic is pretty, I think, straightforward, but here it is, that sins are committed against God. The Bible again and again states that even when we wrong one another, sin is fundamentally a vertical problem. It's a violation of God's law. It is first and foremost against Him. And therefore, He is the only one who has the right to say you're forgiven. So I'll give you an example. Let's say there, there are... Um, You have a friend, and this friend hurts you deeply and wrongs you. But another one of your friends comes to you and says, I forgive you. Well, that other friend who didn't wrong you cannot do that. They they are not able to ask for that forgiveness because they didn't wrong you. And you can't forgive them because you, you, you were not the one that they offended. The only situation where you can actually forgive and offer forgiveness is when the person that has offended you comes to you and you have the right to forgive them. That's the only situation. You alone have the right to forgive that person. You cannot offer forgiveness to anyone else but that person. And here, Jesus is saying, no one else can assume this authority. The scribes are completely undone by this because Jesus is claiming an authority that only God can have. And in their mind, he clearly is not God. Therefore, he's blaspheming. But they have only, they have missed a fundamental part of the story or an Another way of understanding the story. That maybe Jesus is telling us something that fundamentally changes the way we have ever thought about God. And see, Jesus is challenging every prior conception of God and his way of relating to sinners. And I want you to think for a minute about the, the scribes here. They, they hear Jesus say something and do something. And they respond by questioning in their hearts. I think that's a pretty common experience for many of us, especially for people who are considering Christianity or who are actually put off by it, that we listen to Jesus, we see things he does, and questions begin to emerge. Now, often questions we have are really, really good. Having questions is a good thing. It's never a bad thing. But notice the progression here. The progression of the scribes questioning, it moves from a questioning in their hearts to a conclusive accusation. He's blaspheming. And it ends with total dismissal. When they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a dismissive comment. Clearly it's not Jesus. See, this is kind of how unbelief works. Questions bubble up, often really good ones. But then, instead of pursuing those and going to Jesus with those questions, we begin to formulate a conclusive accusation that cuts us off from considering, have we really taken seriously 
who Jesus says he is. And when that happens, dismissal of him is soon to follow. And Jesus' point here, he's not merely a prophet or a teacher or a healer or some revolutionary figure. He is God in the flesh, come to freely and forgive sins and to reconcile us to himself. And see, what you have here, the issue of Jesus' identity, as the one who has the authority to forgive sins, there's a fundamental, this is fundamental understanding Christianity. That you must decide what you believe about Jesus. Every other issue and struggle and question that you have hangs on that question. I've, I, many times in, in the years that I've been a pastor, I've had people come to me with questions. And they're really, really good questions. But nine times out of ten, those questions are asked on the assumption that Who you say Jesus is, is irrelevant. But again and again, the way Jesus comes to us is in in this way. First, you must decide, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God raised from the dead? Because if you do, that changes everything. It changes the questions we ask. It changes the answers that we get. It fundamentally changes everything. But see, if you come to if if you ask these questions as the scribes are here, without reference to Jesus or what he says or what he thinks or who he says he is, we have a we have to ask ourselves another question. Well, why do we care? If it doesn't matter who Jesus is to the question we're asking, why are we so concerned about what the Bible says or what Christianity says or what any other Christian person says? Because everything about Christianity hangs on the answer to that one question. Who is Jesus really? Now, some of you are here this evening. Many of you uh, profess faith in Christ. Some of you are here, maybe you don't. But my guess is all of us have questions. If not today, maybe you have in the past. If not today, maybe you will in the future. And Jesus here is helping us to see the place to start is going back to again and again, who does he say that he is? And if you answer that question as he does, where does it take you? How does it enable you to wrestle with the questions that you have? And Jesus, he is fully aware here of how radical a thing it is for him to claim the authority to forgive sins. And so, knowing that, he takes opportunity To actually demonstrate it. To prove it to us. So Jesus, his forgiveness is unexpected. It's alarming. But then finally it's also provable. So after perceiving the scribes' questions, Jesus, in verses 8 and 9, he asks his own. In the form of a challenge, but not to the scribes. It's a challenge, really, that he sets up for himself. When he says to them, having perceived within himself what they were thinking, he says to them, which is easier to say to the, to, to the paralytic, to take, take up, to, your sins are forgiven, or to rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now he's throwing down a little bit of a gauntlet here. The easier thing for him to say is your sins are forgiven, and why is that? 
Because it's difficult to prove or disprove. But the harder thing to say would be to get up, take your mat, and go home. The reason being because it's immediately verifiable. And so Jesus throws down this challenge to the scribes and to himself even and to everyone there. And he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus says the difficult thing, and in doing so, he not only heals the paralytic, but proves his authority to forgive sins. And I want you to see two things about what he's doing here. In doing this, in verse 10, Jesus, he looks backwards, and he speaks personally. He looks backwards because if you notice in verse 10, He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this this term occurs very infrequently, only a couple times in Mark's Gospel before we get halfway through. And then it occurs something like 12 times in the second half of the book. Jesus here is picking up on a a phrase, a name that occurs in Daniel chapter 7. To describe a a divine figure who appears before the Ancient of Days, which is another word for God, the Lord. And it's a divine figure who is empowered with God's authority, which is why he uses it here. He doesn't use the word Christ or Messiah because in the first century, that term was loaded with all kinds of Assumptions, particularly that were political and revolutionary, almost militaristic, that the Messiah was the one who would come and free God's people from Roman tyranny. And also, up at this up to this point, there was no mention of the Messiah ever having authority to forgive sins. But Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He assumes a new name, as it were, to begin to broaden the horizon of who the Messiah really is. That not only is he a divine figure empowered with God's authority, but he is in fact God himself in the person of Jesus Christ with the authority to forgive sins. So not only does he look back into the Old Testament to root where he gets this authority He also speaks personally to the paralytic. Look here in verse 10. When he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. As if turning, Mark giving us a cue. Jesus turns, looking at the paralytic. And remember, Jesus' first words to the paralytic were, your sins are forgiven. As wonderful as that may have been for him to hear, Jesus didn't say... Rise, get up and walk. And you have to wonder how disappointed he must have been. But here Jesus turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What is, imagine being that paralytic. 
Not only did he come and Jesus says your sins are forgiven, now he has a daily reminder that his sins are forgiven. Every time his feet hit the ground, when he wakes up in the morning and he can walk around, Jesus has given him a permanent reminder he is forgiven. Now, what is the permanent reminder that Jesus has given to you and me? The assurance that when he says your sins are forgiven, that they are in fact forgiven. This charge of blasphemy that the, the scribes level at Jesus, it shows up again in chapter 14 in Mark's gospel. And in fact, right here is the beginning of the conflict that unravels throughout the rest of the story. And the fulfillment, the end of that conflict, is that Jesus, when he is betrayed, before the Sanhedrin, all of the religious leaders, do you know what the charge is that sends him to the cross? Blasphemy. What we see here is Jesus willingly stepping into the path that will take him to his own death. His own crucifixion. So, but you know why? So that he could say to you and me, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're anything like me, I read this story and I'm like, you know, I wish I had the assurance that he gave this paralytic. But think about this with me for a moment. There was no guarantee that that man, who knows, something could have happened and been paralyzed again. What would that meant to him? Would it mean, well, maybe this forgiveness didn't last? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe, I don't know if Jesus can forgive me again. How can I be sure? And in this story, we get the, the foretaste of what's going to happen that lit, led Jesus to the cross. That he came to suffer and die. And what took him there was his authority to forgive your sin. So that through his death and resurrection, you could be sure that when you come to Jesus in faith and you ask him for forgiveness, it is yours forever. Because he has already done the work. He is alive from the dead. And he will never suffer again. It's finished. It is finished. Forgiveness is for you. Jesus hung on the cross and he says it is finished. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that the good news of this story, though horrific and horrible for Jesus, becomes our, our joy that he would willingly come and bear the judgment that we deserve, that he would come and pronounce forgiveness, that though we have rebelled against you, we have sinned against you, he would bear that cost to make us right with you so that we could be free, free from sin, free from guilt, free from its 
its power and its shame. And we ask, Father, that whatever, wherever we find ourselves today, we ask that this message, that you forgive sinners, would sink deeply into us. And that whatever else we may long for you to do for us and for others and in our own lives, we ask that you would help us to see that our greatest need is to receive your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.